Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter here on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. Space resources are optional to gain a foothold in space, but necessary to gain a stronghold, says Kevin Cannon, my guest in this episode of Faster Please, the podcast. In this interview, we'll be discussing space mining, the economic and engineering challenges it faces, and why it matters. Kevin is a professor of space resources and geology and geological engineering at Colorado School of Mines in Golden, Colorado. He's also author of the Planetary Intelligence Newsletter on Substack. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. You've written uh, that building a space-based civilization is all about raw materials. And given your uh, academic specialty, these are raw materials out there, not down here. But I want to start off with if... If I am not interested in building a space-based civilization, do I care what's out there, what materials, what elements I can find out there? Yeah, so let me give you two examples of how this could kind of come back to Earth. Um, one is something that's being talked about increasingly lately, and that's this idea of space-based solar power. Um, so we want to you know, undergo this, this energy transition, switch to renewables, Solar power, the, the issue there is the scaling and the land that's available, right? You only have so much land that you can put up more solar panels. So if we wanted to have, you know, a truly energy abundant future, one way to do that is to actually put up structures, satellites in orbit that collect solar power and beam it back to the earth via microwaves. And it turns out the only way to really make this economic is to actually make those structures out of raw materials uh, that are found in space, either from the moon or from asteroids. If you try to launch everything that you need, uh, you know, it's just, it's too expensive. It's too difficult. So that's one example. Second example related to that, uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of talk about climate in general, and there's still this kind of idea out there that we can get through this, this, this climate issue by just reducing emissions. Um, I think at kind of a higher level, the discussions out there are that that's not going to be enough, that we're not drawing down those emissions fast enough, and that we may need to use uh, different geoengineering techniques. There's different ways to do that. You can inject stuff into the atmosphere. You can put stuff into the ocean. Those are a little bit problematic politically. Uh, one alternative is to actually just block out a small fraction of the sun's radiation with something called a, a planetary sunshade. So you put up a structure in space at the L1 Lagrange point between the sun and the earth. Uh, and that structure blocks out say one to 2% of the, of the sunlight and cools the planet uh, and helps as a, a mitigation effort. And again, that structure is so large that we could not possibly launch that into space. We would have to build that out of materials that we find. So even if you don't, you know, you don't wanna leave the earth, you're, you're happy here, um, you still have problems on Earth, and there are solutions to those uh, that could potentially be found by using raw material uh, on the moon or on asteroids. So you're saying that even with a decline in we, we've seen in launch costs uh, in recent years, and even assuming you know some continued progress, 
that would be more affordable to build these two examples with, uh, with you know, the uh, regolith or the the surface, uh, you know, dirt in a way uh, from uh, from the moon or Mars or from some other place, some asteroid, than just getting it out into space and you know with a rocket. Even if it's a rocket that goes up pretty cheaply compared to the rockets of the past. Right. So the thing you have to understand is that as those launch costs come down, it also becomes cheaper to put the factory on the moon that makes the components that, you know, assembles the structure in space. Um, and it's also the case that, you know, we're not going to, we wouldn't build a hundred percent of the structure. You would still be launching uh, the kind of intricate parts, the dopants for your solar panels, the wiring, things like that. It's kind of the bulk structure that we would make the, what we kind of call the dumb mass as opposed to the smart mass. Um, but yes, as, as the launch costs come down, it it's easier to put things in orbit, but it's also easier to put construction material and uh, assembly material to do this kind of uh, this kind of effort, this, this space based construction effort. I think that's always the big concern is trying to make the the economics work. I find that people sort of aren't fully aware of what possibilities have been opened up because it's gotten a lot cheaper uh to launch rockets in the space and hopefully we'll get a bit cheaper still yeah i mean we're anticipating right now in the, the months ahead the first orbital launch of the spacex starship um so spacex has brought the launch costs down dramatically just with the falcon 9 through reuse through the falcon heavy um but the the possibility for a starship is really a step function it's not just you know a continuation of that smooth decline but really uh, a potential you know, leap in our ability to put massive amounts of, of stuff into space. Um, and, you know, as if, if that design is proved out, then hopefully other uh, competitors will start to, to copy that and improve on it. And we'll see, you know, an even more dramatic reduction. But again, I think people have a hard time understanding the economics of going in mining an asteroid to bring back, to build things on Earth. Is that ever... Would that be economical versus using that material to build things out in space? There's only a very narrow case you could make for a certain class of materials. And specifically, that would be things like the platinum group metals. And those meet a number of criteria. They're very expensive. So, for example, the uh, the metal rhodium sells for about $400,000 per kilogram. And we only mine a very small amount of those per year. It's measured in single digit or double digit tons. So, you know, 20 or 30 tons of these materials per year. So just possibly you could make an economic case to bring back some of those platinum group metals. Um, but for something like copper, you know, we mine millions of tons per year and that's never going to make sense. Um, so that's kind of the the big misnomer about space resources that, that's kind of out there in the, the public perception that what we're talking about is, is going out into space and, and bringing stuff back and, and selling it into existing commodity markets. And that's really not what the, the main focus. What the main focus is, is, is using local materials that we find to help uh, you know, expand civilization into space rather than bringing everything with us. Um, but maybe just maybe you could make a case for something like some of these platinum group metals. Uh, what you're doing is not speculative. Uh, this is something that you think will have practical application and you're graduating students who are getting hired to begin to think and do this, right? 
Yeah, so it's still in the early stages, but it's not science fiction and it's not theoretical. So let me give you a couple examples of what's been happening in the last few years. Um, last year on Mars, there's a small instrument on board the Mars Perseverance rover, the NASA rover, uh, called MOXIE. And this is a demonstration that sucks up a little bit of the CO2 atmosphere of Mars and converts it into breathable oxygen. So this is the first time in history we've taken a raw material on another planetary body and actually turned it into a valuable product. It's the first creation of, of a resource in space. Um, second example, a couple months ago, we had the launch of uh, a private lander from the company iSpace. This is gonna be the first attempt at a commercial landing on the moon. And as part of that mission, they are going to try and scoop up a small amount of the regolith and NASA has already signed a contract to purchase that material. Uh, it's a very small dollar amount. The real, the real point of that is to set a precedent that if you go out and mine material in space, that it is yours to then sell uh, to someone else. So if that's successful around April, uh, that will be the first sale of a resource uh, in, in outer space. Um, and then, yeah, so there are a wide variety of, of companies working on this. We have uh, the Space Resources Program at Colorado School of Mines. Um, and just you know, an example there, Blue Origin, uh, not a lot of people know about this. In the past year or so, they've hired about 30 full-time employees working just on space resources on ISRU. As, as, as you've been talking, I've been trying to quickly dig up a, uh, a, a quote from one of my favorite books and TV shows, The Expanse, uh, which touches on... Uh, on this issue of the resources out there. And I lo and uh, let me just quickly read it uh, to you. Platinum, iron, and titanium from the belt, water from Saturn, vegetables and beef from the big mirror-fed greenhouses on Ganymede and Europa, organics from Earth and Mars, power cells from Io, helium-3 from the refineries on Rhea and Iapetus. A river of wealth and power unrivaled in human history came through Ceres. That's sort of the big sci-fi dream that there is this vast, uh, you know, vast field of resources out there that we can tap into, and if we can tap into it, it will, it it will be primarily for creating this space civilization. Am I right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, the the atoms are out there. We know, you know, all the atoms in the periodic table are found on every planetary body. It's a matter of concentration and it's a matter of having the energy to separate those out and turn them into useful products. Um, as long as we can figure out how to do that, then we have the resources available just in the solar system to support, you know, a massive population of people um, to live at a very high level um, of well-being and so that's kind of the that's the long-term promise is that we can expand into space and have a thriving civilization um, that is built on top of those resources uh, i love how you put it in one of your uh one of your tweets uh you wrote space resources are optional to gain a foothold in space but necessary to gain a stronghold right so if you look back at what we've done so far in human space exploration We've landed 12 people on the moon. They walked around for a few days and then they came back. Since then, we've sent people up to low Earth orbit, to the International Space Station or the Chinese equivalent. They stay up there for a few months and they come back. In those cases, it makes sense to bring everything that you need with you, all the food, all the water, all the oxygen. 
If we have greater ambitions than that, though, if we want to not just walk around on the moon, but have a permanent installation, we want to start growing a city on Mars that becomes self-sufficient. We want to have these O'Neill cylinders. You simply just can't launch that material with you. And that's because we live in this deep gravity well. Um, we can just barely get these small payloads off the surface with, with chemical rockets. Um, and so it just economically physically does not make sense to try and bring everything with you if you have these these larger ambitions. And so uh, the only way to to kind of enable that kind of future is to make use of the material that you find when you get to your destination. The question I always get is, why bother doing any of this? Is that a question you spend a lot of time trying to answer? Or are you convinced it's going to happen and you just sort of move beyond that question? Yeah, I think enough people have made the case for for why we need to do this. Uh, you can look at it from different perspectives, from you know one of kind of scientific discovery, uh, one of you know existential risk to the planet that you know if we stay here uh, on Earth, eventually something is going to come along that you know presents a, a, a existential risk to civilization. Um, what I'm trying to do is work with the people, with the companies who are. Uh, actually trying to do this and help them using my perspective, this kind of unique perspective um, that's based around uh, the, the science and the composition of these planetary bodies and how to make use of these resources. So I don't concern myself too much with the question of, of, of why we should do that. I'll kind of leave that to more of the philosophers, the other people who have, have worked on that. Um, so I, I agree that I'm kind of past that and I am really deep in kind of the, the nitty gritty details of, of how to actually do this, right? How to turn the regolith into metals and ceramics, how to get rocket propellant out of ice at the poles of the moon. Um, that's what I, I spend my time focused on. And uh, there, there was a, a boom in some uh, planetary resource startups a few years ago, uh, which didn't last. What, so what, is, what has changed between sort of now and back then? Uh, is it just, again, the drop in launch costs, um, just the technology's gotten better? Up until very recently, we had very low interest rates. It's easy to finance things. Well, so we're sort of in like a, a second wave of this. Why? What? What is making this second wave possible? Yeah, so I think the, the launch cost and the technology do make a difference. Um, I think the other thing is the way that some of these newer companies are going about it. So the, that first wave that started back around 2012, you had these two main companies, uh, Planetary Resources and, and Deep Space Industries, and they tried to do this as kind of a typical venture capital uh, funded endeavor where they went through you know, their seed round, their Series A, Series B. Um, and that's pretty difficult to do if you want a return on your investment in five to seven years. Um, so what we're seeing lately are companies coming into this space who have already amassed uh, a lot of capital. They might have um, founders or backers uh, who have the money to actually uh, put up missions without first raising capital. Um, so I think that's what's going to start to make more of a difference and make kind of a make this second wave last and, ha and have longer legs. Um, is is some of the companies uh, that are coming into this. So I mentioned one, of course, uh, Blue Origin with Jeff Bezos, who's you know pumping in about a billion dollars a year, very active in the space, not talking about it a lot publicly. Um, but there are some newcomers uh, that uh, that have also shown up in the last couple of years. Um, one that we're working with is called Carmen Plus. Uh, they are a new asteroid mining company uh, who are going to be setting up shop here in Colorado. 
Um, and, you know, they have the kind of money up front to be able to, uh, you know, make a splash uh, without having to go through the typical kind of VC funding route at the, at the very beginning. How supportive uh, is NASA of is NASA of this general concept of seeing space as a resource to be extracted or exploited, um, whether it's to help, whether it's to do things here on Earth or build a space civilization? Is this, you know, is are they all bored? Is are they, do they view this as this is a private sector thing? We're going to focus on exploration and and are doing science, and this is this is a different thing, and we really don't care. Yeah, so NASA historically has always put a little bit of money into this field in the field of space resources. Um, they have, you know, kept it going um, even as interest has, has, you know, waxed and waned. What they've never done though is made it a critical part of their missions. So, for example, right now they're working towards the Artemis program, right, landing people back on the surface of the moon. Um, and, you know, they're exploring ideas of uh, prospecting for ice at the poles of the moon. They have this upcoming Viper mission. Um, they're, you know, funding technology to extract oxygen from, from the lunar regolith. But what they're not doing is saying, okay, the Artemis astronauts are going to breathe that oxygen. And that's going to, uh, you know, be a critical part of, of the Artemis program. So, they're funding it. They're they're bringing it along. Um, they are supporting it to some extent, but they're not making it a key part of of their missions. Um, so I think what we're going to see is uh, you know continued uh, activity in the private sector, and then what we're also seeing though is a lot more interest lately from uh, from the space force and from DARPA. So those government agencies uh, are starting to uh, get a lot more interested in these topics. What when you think about this, uh, what is you know what is the timeline? Do you think that is reasonable? You know, permanent using space resources to create a permanent you know permanent base on uh, on the moon on Mars to go further out and extract resources not from the regolith on the moon but from actual asteroids that and, and using those resources. What what is sort of your loose timeline? How you think about it? You don't have to give months and days and dates, but you know just broadly. Yeah, so right now we're in the phase where we're we're testing the developing the technology in the laboratory space, and then just starting to deploy it as these kind of demonstrations uh, on the moon or on Mars. So I mentioned the Moxie experiment, right, converting the the atmosphere of Mars into, into oxygen. Um, in the next couple of years, there's going to be a lot of these small commercial landers uh, going to the moon. A lot of those have demonstration payloads uh, where they're going to do things uh, like. Uh, try and 3D print with the regolith or try and extract oxygen from it. So the next step, I'd say uh, maybe three to five years from now is to get to the point where we have uh, kind of a pilot plant. Uh, so maybe we're, uh, you know, extracting water from the poles of the moon or oxygen from the regolith. And we have something, you know, a little bit bigger than these, these kind of tiny uh, experiments. So we have something like a pilot plant. Um, maybe 10 years out, we have, you know, kind of full scale production of, of, a, of a simple resource like like rocket propellant. Um, and then, you know, I think we're in kind of maybe the 15 to 20 year time scale for starting some of those larger efforts, uh, you know, starting to land supplies on Mars that would, you know, that would go towards this, this city that SpaceX has talked about, um, starting to 3D print a structure on the moon that would be a permanent installation. So that's kind of the, the timeline 
uh, that I think about. And then in terms of the investment part of this, um, there is another piece to this in that a lot of the companies who are working on these technologies also have a component of it that's focused on earth-based uh, technology. So I'll give you uh, one example. There's a company in, uh, in Texas called Icon, Icon Technologies, and they are their main business is actually on Earth, and it's to 3D print entire houses uh, to address the housing crisis. But then they also have a segment uh, where they're applying those same techniques uh, to be able to 3D print structures on the moon or Mars. So for investors looking to get into this, you know, there is uh, there there are a set of companies that have those shorter horizon. Uh, terrestrial applications, but then those also feed into these longer-term uh, space-based goals. Uh, in 2019, you co-wrote these uh, feeding one million people on Mars. That would certainly qualify as a as a as a a, a pretty large space colony. Uh, can you briefly tell me like how you would do that, and are we talking that being possible this century? Yeah. So the. The thing that I think a lot of people get wrong about the food piece of this is that they assume we're going to keep this paradigm that we've had for 10,000 years of growing our food in the dirt. So there's a lot of work out there that's being done. It's not always very good quality of, you know, let's try and grow plants in in the regolith. Let's add fertilizer to these these, uh, fake regolith samples and try and grow, grow plants. And that's simply not very efficient. Um, so uh, I, I think that actually we're going to, as we go into space, we're going to abandon this idea of, of growing all of our food in dirt. Uh, I think it's going to be all through in, in bioreactors, uh, through cellular agriculture. Um, so I think that's kind of the main way that we're going to produce food in space. In terms of the logistics to do that on Mars, the, the challenge there is that if you want to, so, so let's say your end goal is you want a city with a million people on Mars. And that's what, what Elon has stated is, is kind of the end goal. The, the question is, how do you get there? And what you eventually want is for that city to be self-sustaining so that if the ships stopped coming from Earth, that it would you know be able to persist. So what you have to do is you have to transition from that city or that base making 0% of the calories that are being consumed on Mars to eventually 100%. Um, and so the, the challenge is figuring out how do you scale from that zero to 100%. Um, it's going to involve a massive number of ships that are sending supplies. But the question is, you know, do you try and switch to being 100%, 100% self-sufficient at the beginning, uh, or do you kind of slowly ramp up over time? So that's kind of the main problem with the logistics is when do you stop sending the material from Earth and when do you send the machine that makes the material on Mars? It's a tricky problem. I would assume you were pretty pretty happy uh, to hear about this nuclear fusion breakthrough because I'm because I doubt any of this really works, probably unless you have nuclear fusion reactors. Yeah, so I mean, in space, there are some advantages to solar panels. Um, if you are in orbit or on the moon or near an asteroid, right, you don't have clouds, you don't have an atmosphere to attenuate the solar radiation. Um, but I think eventually we are going to have to kind of make that transition to something like fusion. Um, and, you know, people have talked about the potential for helium-3 on the moon. I'm not 100% sold on that. There's there's other routes to, uh, to get to fusion. Um, but I think certainly that that extra energy, that ability to scale the energy um, is it, it really opens up the resources that are available because 
one thing we find is that on Earth we have a lot of ore bodies where certain elements have you know become very concentrated relative to the rest of the the crust of the Earth, and that's where we set up mines and, and extract these materials. On other planetary bodies, that those processes haven't happened to the same extent, and so we don't really have a lot of good ores um, that we could mine. And so what we're going to have to do is actually figure out how to extract something like rare earth elements or copper from a raw material that doesn't have very much of those those elements, doesn't have kind of those ore minerals. And that's going to take an enormous jump in energy. Um, so something like fusion is probably necessary to really achieve that, that self-sufficiency to be able to get you know every element of the periodic table we need from raw materials that don't have very high concentrations. Perhaps a question I should have asked earlier. What is there a lot of out there that there's just not very much here? Because uh, I imagine whatever that, whatever that is, is the stuff that we're going to focus on first or or potentially bring here. So is there is, is there stuff that's particularly abundant that, that we just don't have very much here? If we think of this from the level of, of chemical elements, uh, the answer is, is not really. I mean, you could make a case that helium-3 falls into that. Um, but that's only true if you go out to the outer planets, uh, so, you know, Neptune and Uranus, they have a lot more helium-3 than the, the tiny amount that's kind of sprinkled in, in the lunar soil. Um, the, the thing that's most abundant in space in terms of kind of solid material is, is just the dirt. Um, almost every planetary body, the moon, Mars, asteroids, they're all covered in this layer of regolith or dirt. Um, and that really is the the raw material that is going to have to be uh, the feedstock for all these things we're talking about, the metals, the ceramics. Um, the We're going to have to make a lot of aluminum. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, so fortunately, actually, actually, that is one thing. So if we look up at the moon at night, uh, you know, you have the, the bright regions, those are the lunar highlands. Um, those are almost entirely made of, of a mineral called anorthite uh, that has a lot of aluminum. So uh, there are very good sources of those kind of light structural metals um, on, on the moon in particular. Do you anticipate somebody at some point saying, you know, we've we've already overexploited the Earth. Now we're going to ruin the moon, too. Uh, and we're going to ruin Mars and asteroids. This is this our galactic heritage. No, those conversations are already happening. Um, so just, for example, last month, there was a preprint, a preprint published uh, that made the case that we should declare a moratorium on the entire North Pole of the Moon um, that should, should be set aside for only scientific activities. So um, those conversations are, are just starting. Um, right now, there's no kind of legal framework to prohibit this kind of activity. So, uh, you know, certainly people are free to express their concerns um, and to propose ideas like this. Um, but as of yet, we don't have some kind of widely ratified uh, agreement or framework for how to, you know, responsibly use resources in space. Um, so certainly, you know, the people in in the field of space resources were, were conscious of this and, um, I think, you know, we're not uh, proposing to go out and strip mine the entire solar system. Um, but I think, you know, the argument is that the potential benefits, uh, especially in terms of, of well-being, just how many people that uh, could be supported with those resources, uh, that that outweighs the concerns about, uh, you know, disturbing these these natural environments. Are there sort of types of mining, I guess, that we do here right now, which are sort of 
are, are kind of proofs of concept or kind of might resemble what we would do on on, on a on, on the moon or Mars or an asteroid? Or is it or would it just be totally different? And these are all new technologies that we would have to innovate. Yes, there, there is a very good analogy, and it's something called heavy mineral sands deposits. So uh, these are not like your typical open pit mines or your underground mines. These are these kind of vast areas of loose sand on the earth that have uh, some very valuable elements uh, locked up in these dense minerals. And so what happens is that you go out and just scoop up uh, these loose sediments, and then you're sifting them uh, to sort out those dense minerals that you want. Um, so because almost every planetary body is covered in this loose, unconsolidated regolith, um, I think that is a pretty good analogy for what we'll be looking at. You'll have excavators that scoop up that loose material, they bring it back to a processing site, and then you're sorting the minerals. It's kind of like a needle in a haystack um, to get the ones you want. And then the ones you don't want, you know, you could still use those for other applications. You can melt them down, turn them into bricks. Um, and, uh, you know, do other things with them. So that's probably the best analogy on earth are these, these heavy mineral sands deposits. Are the biggest hurdles, are they making the economics work? Is it getting the basic science and technology to work? Is it sort of political support? Cause you know, at least for a long time, I, I would imagine even if it's a private effort, there's going to be a lot of government money floating around here. I'm not worried about the fundamental technology to, take the material in space and turn it into useful resources. I think that's been well demonstrated in the lab, and there's a lot of research being put into that right now. It's a tractable problem. Um, I think on the technical side, the biggest challenge is getting Starship into orbit in the near term. Um, the progress on that seems to have stalled a little bit, um, and that's getting a little bit concerning um, because something like that, that kind of launch capability and that, that the cadence um, that that allows uh, is really going to be necessary to uh, enable the kind of kinds of things we've talked about. Um, so on the technology side, it's really just it's the launch piece of it. Um, the economics, I think people have made some pretty good uh, pretty good business cases for things like uh, propellant mined from the poles of the moon. Um, and I think with some of these ideas uh, around things like space-based solar power, planetary sunshade, so that's not too concerning. I think it's the combination of the launch piece of it and then the, uh, the you know, the political support for this. Um, if that were to, if it really take a turn for the worse, um, that would, you know, that would uh, not be good for these kinds of ambitions. I do think, though, this emerging space race with China. As long as China's interested, we're going to be interested, right? Yes, yes. So I think that is, you know, that's what's drawing in the interest of the Space Force of DARPA. Um, I think that's going to kind of keep things going for at least the medium term, as long as as we're in that that competition. Kevin, outstanding stuff. I think I've already had the podcast of the year and it's only January. Hey, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you so much.